Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, we recognize as we come before you on this Lord's day that we're nothing before you, and yet you love us with an everlasting love, and you call us into your family. And it's because of that we can come before you and, and, and enter these walls of life that you call us to and recognize that you're in it. And as we suffer loss and we grieve the various things we have to die to, Lord, you form us into the persons you've called us to be. And as we look at the greatest wall that ever, anybody has ever known, I pray that you would speak new truths to our hearts and our souls. And that as we recognize that, that we too would walk out of here changed, equipped, empowered, and grateful for all that you've done for us in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. You might wonder why the pulpit's in the middle. Um, not only in England, but in, in America, uh, in some Anglican churches, they put the lectern in the middle because it sends a signal that the priest's word of God is why we're here. That the word is central to who we are, all right, as God's people. The Falls Church has their lectern in the middle of, of their new uh, place. So it's not foreign. And in England, they do. You know, when St. Helens went through a renovation because it got bombed, because it's right next to their Wall Street, and their Wall Street got bombed. Bishopsgate is Wall Street in England. And so Dick Lucas said, we're not going to keep the structure like this. We're going to turn it. And, and they brought in chairs like this, and they put the pulpit right in the center. And St. Helens is a thriving place because of Dick Lucas' faithfulness. 30 years in one church, faithfully preaching the word. So that's why it's here, my friends. So we're in a series on emotionally healthy discipleship. Um, and we do this because it keeps the whole church on the same page as we're walking through COVID together. So we've got various little churches walking through these passages and Bible studies throughout the week. And we have learned some great truths as uh, we've gone through this study together. We learned first, through looking at Saul, what an unhealthy disciple looks like. He's all talk, no action. His words don't match his life. And therefore, it's unhealthy, and it was tragic for him and for Israel. Two, we also learned from David that our identity is not found in following our flesh, the world, or the schemes of the enemy. That our identity is found in pursuing the glory of God, and that's where true freedom is found. And he didn't listen to those voices. He didn't listen to all that, and he took on Goliath in the strength of the Lord, because the battle is the Lord's, and we have one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture. We learned next that the second step of being a healthy disciple is to recognize that we have to go back to go forward, that we recognize, and we saw Joseph, not playing the victim. So many people in our culture play the victim, right? And, and some of us have had awful childhoods. I know, I know. But that doesn't identify you now. What identifies you is Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit empowers you. And we saw in Joseph that he extended forgiveness to his brothers because they meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And Joseph is a blessing to the world because of that. 
And last week we learned as we do those two things, every single one of us run into walls or crises of some kind, a terrible life situation. It happens to every one of us at one time or another throughout our lives. And we learn that these are necessary in order for us to be transformed as we're called to be. And we saw that in Abraham and his faithfulness. Well, today, we're still in the wall. All right? Just think, we're still in the wall, and we're going to look at the greatest wall ever in the cross of Jesus. And so I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 26, because what we're going to see is the enormity of his wall. We're going to see the timing of his wall, which is very interesting, and then why it matters for us. All right? The enormity of his wall, the timing of his wall, and why this matters. Because when we hit the walls of life, as we all will, we're called to come out of it as a new creation, a new creature, transformed, because we're walking with the Lord. And Jesus teaches us how we can do that. Because in verse 42, he says, Not my will, your will be done. He said is it in verse 39, not as I will, but as you will. Or if you want to say it in the King's James, you have my permission. Not my will, but thy will be done. All right? We pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done in the Lord's Prayer. Because we need every bit of help in our walls of life. And as we learn to pray your will be done, you instantly are going to realize that we are butting up against our culture. Noted author Alan Ehrenholt writes, Most of us in America believe a few distinct propositions of life. Number one, choice is a good thing. Number two, the more we have, the happier we will be of the choices that we have. And then three, authority is inherently evil and suspect. No one has the right to tell me what to do, right? We believe that as a culture. That the more free we are to decide what is right and wrong for ourselves and have no one else tell us how to live our lives, the happier we will be. That's the essence of American culture. But Jesus comes along and says, no, not my will, but yours be done. And it butts up right against our culture. And everything some of us have been taught our entire lives. So let's look at this. The enormity of his wall, number one. What do we mean by that? Verse 37, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. The Greek word sorrowful means agonizing. He's in agony. The word troubled means to be horrified and shocked. And that's the description from the inside of Jesus. And he even goes further here. He he says to his disciple, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Even to death. He says it, that that I feel like I'm going to die here, fellas. I don't want to do this. And it's absolutely all right for him to say this. And the reason I use the enormity 
or the immensity of his agony, his suffering, is because it's perfectly fair to compare what's happening with Jesus right here in the Garden of Gethsemane with many of the great martyrs of the Christian faith, right? I mean, you hear me talk about it every Reformation Sunday or so, right? October 16th, 1555. For five years, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley have been proclaiming in their diocese to the clergy, and the clergy are spreading this throughout England, that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. They're teaching the Bible to the people, where before they weren't, before it was works righteousness, and the people couldn't even understand it because it was in Latin. And all of a sudden, their, their services in English, their Bibles are in English, and their pastors are preaching the word of God to them by, from these godly bishops. Well, Bloody Mary became queen and threw all the reformers in jail and sentenced many of them to die. And when they died back then, a church crime, you were burned at the stake. Because they believed by f- burning you, maybe you... You purged a couple hundred years off your purgatory sentence. And as the flames were rising, Bishop Latimer was heard to say, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. For we shall this day in England like such a candle as by God's grace shall never be put out. There's a lot of stories like that, when you, when you read Fox's Book of Martyrs. There's a lot of stories like that. When you just go to Open Doors website, what some of our brothers and sisters are going through right now, right now, the most dangerous thing in the world to be is a Christian. But they didn't have any of the horror and shock that we're seeing here in the garden. And it's true that Jesus prayed three times. Lord, I don't want to go through this. Not my will, but yours be done. Now we have to understand that Jesus might be shocked by this, but he's not surprised. There's a difference. It's not as if he hasn't taught them through all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. He's going to go die. He's been teaching this. He's not shocked by it. But he's fallen to the ground, pleading. So why was it that it appears in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus wasn't as poised and as peaceful as Latimer and Ridley? Verse 37. He began to be sorrowful and trouble. Verse 39, I'm sorry. My father... If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The term cup could mean simply suffering a horrible ideal, but in many cases it it represents a judgment. The cup was a metaphor for fiery, sobering, suffering judgment. That's also what it meant in the Old Testament. We see in Ezekiel 23, after God's people were disobedient and and stiff-necked, Ezekiel says to them, You shall drink the cup of ruin and desolation and tear your breasts. 
Isaiah 54, you will drink the cup of his fury and you will stagger. That's what we see Jesus Christ doing here. He's staggering. He's tearing his breast. The judicial wrath of God and human evil is coming down upon him now. It's beginning to come down for the first time. He was really starting to experience fully what he's going to fully experience on the cross. Abandonment, rejection, and God withdrawing his presence. Scholar Bill Lane in his Mark commentary, speaking to this point, he says, The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then, out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny, nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father, and who came to be with the Father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven opened before him. Jesus Christ, the only perfect being, the only person ever who had walked fully and wholly in the presence of God, was having that stripped away. None of us has known the joy of the Father's presence to a degree like him. None of us. It was, it was discovered that Blaise Pascal, that great mathematician, when he died, had sewn in the lining of his coat notes of an encounter with God that he journaled, and he saved it, that encounter. And he kept it in the lining of his, sewed it into the lining of his pocket and kept it close to his heart. But that was just one experience for Blaise Pascal. Jesus Christ would have known that kind of joy every time he met with his father. He would have known the love to degrees that we can only wish for, it seems. But right now, the father is withdrawing. He's beginning to reject him and beginning to abandon him. As Latimer and Ridley were dying, they felt the presence of God. They felt the peace of God. As they're being burned alive, Jesus Christ noticed God's absence. He was beginning to get a foretaste of what was going to come down upon him on the cross. The experience of hell. The experience of eternal and cosmic abandonment. Friends, we were built for the presence of God and Jesus even more so because he's the second person of the Trinity. And as he began to be pulled away from the Father, it was absolute agony. Beginning to taste the wrath of God. And that's enormous suffering. Now before moving on and looking at the timing of this enormous suffering. Let me just say something quickly. Do you believe in the wrath of God like the typical modern person believes in the wrath of God? You know, the typical modern person comes along and says, I don't like to talk about the God of wrath and hell. I like to talk about the God of love. I believe in a loving God. 
May I ask, you have a God of love who doesn't get angry at people. Yeah, that's right. Well, what did it cost your God to love you? What did it cost? Well, it didn't cost my God anything. Well, that's not love. That's sentimentality. The more you understand the wrath of God, wrath means not a hissy fit, not a fit of rage. It's his personal, settled, controlled, personal hostility to all that is wrong in the world. And the deeper you grasp God's wrath on sin, the more wondrous is the cost that Jesus bore in order to forgive us and save us, and therefore the more wondrous his love. The more angry a God at sin, the more loving a God and gracious God you have that, as we stand at the foot of the cross. That's the enormity of Jesus' suffering. Now, Two, let's look at the timing, okay? What about the question, why is God having Jesus go through this torment right now? I mean, why not save it for the cross? That's a reasonable question. And there's nobody better at this point than the great Anglican theologian and pastor, Jonathan Edwards. He did a sermon that I have up on my shelves in my office. It's called Christ's Agony. Why is it that Jesus Christ experiences and gets a foretaste of this terrible thing now in the garden? According to Edwards, he's completely alone. He's in the dark. The disciples are asleep. The soldiers aren't here yet. Edward says, when he's on the cross and you're nailed to it and the wrath of God is upon you, you can't do anything about it. You can say, this is awful. The Son of God in his human nature had never experienced anything like this. And like we said in the first point, he's utterly shocked. But he can walk away. Right here, he can walk away. If he only experienced it on the cross, it would have been too late for him. He's free to leave. The disciples are asleep. They never know. Actually, they would. The guards aren't there. This is God's way, the Heavenly Father's way of making sure that he's totally obedient unto him. He's not coerced into this. He's not forced into this. It's Jesus' absolute, voluntary act of absolute love. No coercion. Jesus says in John chapter 15, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Here it's happening. So Edward says this, God brought him and set him at the mount of the furnace that he might look in and stand and view its fierce and raging flames and might see where he was going and might voluntarily enter into it and bear it for sinners. As knowing what it was, if Christ had not fully known before he took it and drank it, it would not have properly been his own act as a man. But when he took that cup, 
knowing what he did, so is his love to us infinitely the more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more perfect. It's as if the heavenly father was saying to him, Jesus, here's your cup. I'm giving it to you to drink. There's the furnace. You're going to have to jump in. Either you perish or they perish. There's no other way. This is the pain and the anguish you're going to have to endure. Is your love such that it must go on or not? So why should we be looking at this while we're talking about the walls of our life? Because when we're in the midst of our walls, Jesus Christ in the dark when no one is looking but God and was told, are you willing to die? He said, yes. Here's what you have to do, Jesus. And he did it. Paul describes Jesus in Romans and 1 Corinthians as the second Adam. The first Adam was put into a garden like this and said, Obey me about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you will live. And he didn't. And he and she still don't. The second Adam is also put into a garden, a dark garden. And God is also telling this second Adam, Jesus, obey me about the tree, but this time the tree is a cross. Obey me and I will crush you. The first Adam, obey me and you will live. I'll be with you. The second Adam is told, obey me about the tree and I will abandon you. I will reject you. I will cast you into hell. You have no idea the agony you're going to endure when I completely withdraw from you and everything's taken from you. No one in human history has been asked to do that before, then, or now. He doesn't abandon people who are obeying him. Bad things happen. That's what our walls are about. But he doesn't abandon this. Here's Jesus, the only person in all of human history who has said, obey me and I will abandon you so that they will not be abandoned. For his love for us was infinitely more wonderful and his obedience to God infinitely more gracious and perfect than anyone else's love ever. He did it for you and me. He did it for his father. No one has ever done such a thing, and he did it for us. And so Edwards, in this sermon, starts, he comes out and he sees his friends are sleeping. And Edwards starts to play a role. Perhaps Jesus was saying, why should I? Why should I plunge myself into such dreadful, amazing torments for people who can never requite me for it? Yea, why should I be crushed under the weight of divine wrath for those who will not even stay awake with me in the hour of my greatest need? That, that's really perfectly reasonable when you think about it. But in modern English, 
They're not even staying awake from me. These people will never understand what I've done for them. Why should I, Father, who's worked holy, walked holy unto you, let this hell bomb explode all over me? But he didn't do that, did he? He comes out. Instead of saying that to his sleeping disciples, what does he say? The spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. He's, he's gracious. He's loving. He's forgiving. He's gentle. And he obeys for us. That's the timing. It's important for us to recognize that. Third, why does this matter? As we hit the walls of our lives. What does this mean for us? Well here's I think what it means. Number one. When we follow Jesus in the walls of our lives. He's an example for us. To be people of integrity. Integrity meaning that you're the same person on Saturday night. That you are on Sunday morning. That you're the same person This afternoon, Monday through Saturday, as you are right now. Because we're not. (laughs) Jesus was. You know, we're one person in the light and we're another person in the dark. Our obedience tends to be self-serving. If it benefits us, we'll obey the Lord. If it doesn't benefit us, no, I won't. We're moral and good even when it doesn't pay. Even when no one is looking. If we're attempting to follow Jesus. So that's the question. Are we the same in the light as in the dark? Jesus was. And how we can be people of integrity is to look at Jesus Christ through his word, in his word, when we're in the wall. Look at him. You are saved by his integrity. If you're a Christian, you're only saved because of the integrity he showed right at this moment. You look at him and say, Lord, if you obeyed in the dark, for me, even when there were absolutely no rewards for you, other than utter, sheer, agonizing pain and suffering, I can do, I can live for you now. That's the first point. This is why this applies to every single one of us. Because we all go through walls. I can live for him even in the midst of it because of what he's done for me. Secondly, he's also our example for persevering and trusting because of how he trusts He's he's not putting on a happy face. He says, I don't want to do this, yet not my will, but yours be done. He's totally emotionally healthy right here. You want to talk about emotionally healthy discipleship? This is it. You know, it's important for us to remember this. I mean, look at our psalm that we prayed. Did you catch it as we prayed it? Oh my goodness, I did, because I've had this happen to me. 
You ever had someone, um, which verse was it? It was, we were just praying it. Uh, For I have heard the whispering of the multitude and fear is on every side while they conspire together against me and take their counsel to take away my life. You know, they shrink from me. Those who see me in the street shrink from me. You ever had, you're, you're going this way and someone sees you and walks away? Two-thirds of the Psalms are like this. They're pouring out emotions. That's why I encourage you to pray them out loud in your time, your personal worship time. Pray them out loud to the Lord. It's just wonderful. We have, we have a book, a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. Plural. That's a lot of lament in that, in that little book. Why? Because it's healthy for us to lament and we've been lamenting for 11 months now. <laughs> I don't know about you. I'm still there. The world isn't as I would like it to be. And Lord, I come to you. You're the sovereign God. And Jesus is being very honest about this difficult time. And yet there's no doubt in the end, no matter how much he doesn't understand and it's so difficult, he prays, your will be done. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, I dethrone God in my heart if I demand that he act in the ways that satisfy my idea of justice. It's the same spirit that taunted, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. There's unbelief. There's even rebellion in the attitude that says, God has no right to do this in my life. God is God. If he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will, and that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. There's a reason why a young Kimmy considered her her mentor. As we lived in southern Maryland, across the Chesapeake Bay, you could hear this Christian radio station every day through Elizabeth Elliot's broadcast. It was it was. Grace and truth just served up hot. That's what you see in Jesus Christ. He's trusting God, even though in his humanity he doesn't understand everything, and neither do you. But let's say, your will be done. And it's okay to emotionally healthy say, Lord, I don't want to go through this. Let this cup pass from me but your will be done. That's the power that the Holy Spirit churns up in us. When the Holy Spirit churns up, when we say, Lord, come by the power of the Holy Spirit, let me see you in your word. He gives me the power to be obedient unto him. No one's ever loved you like this. No one's ever served you like this. There's never been a love like this in the history of the world. There's never been anyone who endured the power of hell like this. This is the love you've been looking for all of your life. So let's follow God in this way. And it's important to realize as we we speak about the sleeping disciples, you know who the sleeping disciples represent, right? All the rest of us. (laughs) There's nothing 
that you can do in your walk with Christ that's going to make you love, make him love you less, my friends. It's not about the quality of our faith. It's the object of our faith. So when you pray your will be done, your soul is enlarged to be a person of integrity, poise, and perseverance. I think in closing, Tolkien describes it well in the person of Samwise Gamgee. Him and Frodo are going to Mount Doom in Mordor. You don't go to Mordor for spring break, you know. So, you know, there he is on his way, and it is said of Sam as they're approaching Mount Doom. But even as hope seemed to die, it was turned to a new strength. He felt through all his limbs a thrill as if he was turning into some creature of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue. Do you want to be that person of stone and steel that neither despair nor weariness nor endless barren miles could subdue? You want to be like that? Then begin to pray in all earnestness in your time with the Lord. And we're going to pray it here in the Lord's Prayer during communion, as we always do. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But more importantly, in your personal worship time, Lord, lay out the situation. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Or you can pray as George Herbert put it. For my heart's desire unto thine is bent. I aspire to a full consent. Thy will be done. Let's pray. We come to you, Lord Jesus. We come to you, Heavenly Father, and we come to you, Holy Spirit, right now and ask that you would make your home in us as you describe in John 14, and that you would have your way with us as we pray your will be done. Lord, you're free to roam around our homes, and as we walk in your word throughout this week in our various little churches and and pray your will be done. May Job's prayer and experience be ours. That my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Open our eyes in your word to us this week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.